Hey everybody, how's your day going? So far, I am on day two of finals, and I just had a super chill art final, so pretty, pretty fun, happy about that. I do have a French final in a few hours, so that's not that exciting, but getting to the podcast... Um, Today, we are starting the 50 States Unsolved series with my home state, Colorado. So in this series, I am just going to cover one unsolved case from every state in the U.S. So I technically was alive when this case took place, but I don't remember hearing about it in the media or anything like that. Until, you know, I was um, binging a true crime unsolved episode on YouTube at like 1am on a Saturday, you know, like a very random time. But I was so fascinated by this case that I ended up making a diorama of the scene for my HL art exhibition. This is the case of Joshua Maddox. Joshua Vernon Maddox was born on March 9th, 1990, and he lived in Woodland Park, Colorado. Woodland Park, Colorado is one of those like very small towns, and at the time of the disappearance, according to census data, Woodland Park had 4,850 residents, so quite small, under 5,000. I mean, I've been to towns where there are like 99 residents, so it could be smaller, but still very tight-knit community. But in case you've never been to Colorado and you're wondering, you know, like, where is Woodland Park? And I mean, I've lived in Colorado my whole life and I did not know where Woodland Park was. But um, if this helps, the nearest, and this is in quotes because I don't know if Colorado Springs is really that big of a city, but the nearest, you know, big city is Colorado Springs and that is around 20 miles away. So also something important to note is that in Colorado, as soon as you move north or west of Denver, um, which is the capital of Colorado. Um, If you didn't already know that, listener, I am not making fun of you, but I think I can only name the capitals of like two states, and that's like Montana and California, so I would not be surprised. Colorado is kind of just like one of those random states. Nobody really knows. But anyways, as soon as you move west or kind of just north of Denver, the plots of land that people live on get so huge. And like it's to the point where these people have like normal sized houses, but they they, they still have like five, six acres of land. Um, you know, it's not like suburbia. Like this is huge, sprawling swaths of land I have um an aunt and an uncle that live in like I think Fort Collins or maybe it is Colorado Springs I can't really remember but either way I just remember going up when I was really little and like their house was like normal size you know but their their backyard was so huge and they're not farmers or anything they don't grow so it's just like sprawling kind of unused like natural grasses Um, but anyways, so this fact that these plots of land get really big will be very important later on. So Joshua was described as, by his family as, quote, a free spirit, and he always told us that he was going to have a great adventure, and he may not talk to us for a while. When he said a while, we thought maybe a few years. So again, that is a quote from Joshua's older sister, Kate Maddox. And then to help kind of establish this timeline, we also need to establish some very like defining events in Joshua's life. So no source really kind of stated exactly when, but um, 
All sources indicated that Joshua's parents were divorced at the time of the disappearance and he was living with his dad. I don't know the whole custody situation, but at the time of the disappearance, he was living with his dad. Um, He was also, Joshua, excuse me, was also said to have been very affected by his brother's 2006 suicide. Um, This is kind of like a weird speculation and it is a little early to be getting into speculations, but I just wanted to note this very early, is that some people essentially rumored that this date that Joshua went missing is like the alleged two-year anniversary of his brother's suicide, but that that's really it. It's kind of like, I don't know, maybe. There, there's nothing else to it. There's not, well, you know, he went off to the woods and died or, or anything like that, but it is rumored that he went missing because he went missing in 2008, so he... Essentially, it was just rumored that this was around the two-year anniversary of his brother's suicide. And again, we don't exactly know when his brother's suicide was. And I mean, honestly, I don't blame the media because on it, I think I would be more terrified if the media is just covering things like, yes, his brother committed suicide. Like, it's not really that relevant to the story except for establishing a timeline. And it's almost like too personal, something that just the media should not be covering. So if anything, I'm happy that we don't know the exact date, but just to note that. So at the time of the disappearance, like I mentioned, Joshua, since his parents were divorced and we don't know the custody situation, we do know that Joshua was living with his father um, named Mike and his two sisters named Kate and Ruth. Sources differ as to whether Joshua disappeared in March or May, but just a note here, I did notice more localized and I would say more trustworthy sources um, tended to say May. And honestly, you know, not going to lie, I have messed up March and May and gotten those things confused many, many times. So we are going to go with May. Um, but anyways, all sources agree that he did disappear on the 8th of the month or not really disappeared, but that is when he kind of went um, in French, there's this phrase, oh, I guess in English, I guess it would just be like, he began. So he kind of began this like long walk through the woods. And then, so like I mentioned earlier, Joshua was known to be a nature lover and he liked to go on walks. So it was not out of the ordinary for him to go through walks on the woods, um, by himself. And again, you know, he's lived here all his life. So it, it makes sense that, that his parents kind of trust him in the woods. I personally am like irrationally scared of woods. Call me crazy. But then again, most true crime cases. Oh God, that reminds me of this one like terrifying story I heard about how this one woman was taking a shortcut through the woods to get home from school. And this man followed her like halfway through the woods um, until she, like, realized that she was being followed. It was, like, it was one of those things that it could have ended very badly, but, uh, this is, <laughs> this is gonna be, a, like, a very key theme through all of my podcast is just that I tend to go on very long tangents, so I am very sorry about that, but, again, not out of the ordinary for Joshua to go on long walks. He's lived there all his life. He knows the woods. He's not gonna get lost or anything, Um, It's important to note that Joshua was around six feet tall and 150 pounds at the time of the disappearance. And for any of my metric folks tuning in, that is 1.82 meters and 68 kilograms. I don't really know what metric folks use to measure height. I think it's meters, but yeah, it's around 1.8 meters. Um, 
and 68 kilograms. Okay, so sources indicate that on May 13th, Joshua Maddox was formally reported missing and by his father. And then again, just going back into what I said earlier, I'm going to go that the original date that Joshua went missing was May 8th, not March 8th, um, because I, I don't think his family would have waited a month. And again, more reputable localized sources, because I can understand like a national source kind of just trivializing the like terrifying disappearance and murder of, or excuse me, death of, of this just bright young man and just getting a very important detail wrong. But I feel like, so sorry, anyways, more reputable sources tended to say that he went missing on May 8th. But either way, 13 minus 8 is still 5. So there is still 5 days between Joshua leaving and the father reporting him missing. And here's a quote from his father. I got up one morning and Josh was there. Then he never came home. The next day, he still didn't come home. I called his friends. Nobody had seen him. Nobody knows where he is. And again, going back to that quote that I read earlier from his sister, Joshua had been telling people for a while, you know, planting that seed, so to speak, that he was going to go on a, quote, great adventure and he may not talk to us for a while, quote. So again, I think this five days of not reporting him missing isn't necessarily damning for the family because Joshua had been allegedly depressed and telling people that he was going to leave for a while, an important detail to note, and I am so sorry, because I feel like I'm going to say that at least 40 times, is that Joshua always, 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 always told people that he was going to come back. Um, we also have to remember the time of year that this disappearance is, and I mean like the, the school year time of year that this is happening, and I think this is relevant to get my perspective, because I have been in Denver Public Schools um, since like ECE before kindergarten. Um, yeah, ECU is weird, but I, I understand how this works. And basically we have always had school from August to late May. And when I say late May, I mean like May 31st or early June and maybe, you know, June 5th or 6th, like very, very early, like a week into June or something like that. So this disappearance is potentially happening in the school year and because, remember, he went missing on May 8th, wasn't reported until May... Where is it? May 13th. So he wasn't reporting missing until May 13th. So let's just go with May 13th for right now. So um, the disappearance is potentially occurring inside the school year. Um, and then I don't know if other states do this, but most school districts around Colorado, we always kind of make like a big like thing for seniors is like a little last hurrah, you know, that you get out a few weeks early in May. And it's kind of just like this last hurrah. My sister always used it to like flex on me that she was out of school before me, which is really annoying. Love you, Natalie. Shout out if you're watching this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'll probably edit that out. But so this disappearance is potentially happening in the school year and even if he does get out until like in mid-May the weird thing though is that if he went missing on May 8th he would not be out of school yet unless like something weird happened and that's when he happened to get out of school but 
again, if he was out of school, this could have contributed to the five days between reporting um, because the family, you know, was letting him go on like a last hurrah after finally graduating high school. I feel like that's like a very common trope in a lot of like high school, like quote, you know, coming of age movies. Um, We also have to note geography and temperatures. So um, this might be the only time I reference foothills, but when I say foothills, I'm talking about the areas of Colorado that aren't the Rocky Mountains just yet, but it's also not plains. It's kind of like that weird in between, if that makes sense. Uh, essentially in the foothills during Colorado, cause we like to joke that Colorado is so indecisive that it changes its mind as to what the weather should be every five minutes. Even though recently it has been very cloudy and gray and snowy and cold. So hasn't been indecisive and it's kind of annoying, but we, you know, Colorado is basically a desert, very dry. You got to moisturize a lot here. But as of 2020, the average temperatures in May, which I also just think it's very interesting because in May, all over the U.S., not just Colorado, things are only starting to heat up, you know? So I just, I think it's very interesting that he is just going missing, in May. That's like a very weird time, in my opinion, at least, to be hiking the 14ers, which so many people do during the summer. I don't think I've ever hiked a 14er, but so many people go hiking, backpacking, all of those things, you know, St. Mary's Glacier, all of those things. They do that, but they do that in like June or August when it's warmer, maybe July. That's like the perfect month. So they, they don't do that in May. Nobody really does that in May. I mean, in Minnesota, you know, land of 10,000 lakes, lakes haven't even unfrozen in May. So it's still very cold in May. So I think that's very interesting. And maybe that's also contributed to the five days because his family was like, oh, he'll come back. It's way too cold for him to go for like a long, long time. Um, but anyway, sorry. So as of 2020, the average temperatures in May was a high of 67 degrees Fahrenheit or at a low for my, or, or 67 degrees Fahrenheit or 19 degrees Celsius for my metric folks. And then a low for the days of 38.6 degrees Fahrenheit or three degrees Celsius again for my metric folks. So searches were spread far and wide, scouring the neighborhood and the wider Parkland area. Days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months and still no clue as to his disappearance had been uncovered. The hope of finding Joshua began to fade and his sister Kate spoke of how she had always hoped that he had simply skipped town to go play music or start a different life and held on to the hope of such an eventuality. Um, So this is... an. Essentially, um, Joshua would be found dead in a chimney in 2015, seven years after going missing. So to understand this story a little better, we have to jump to Chuck Murphy. In the 1950s, Chuck Murphy bought a house two blocks away from the Maddox house in Woodland Park, Colorado. Murphy's brother, who is unnamed in all articles, lived in the house until 2005 after his brother moved out. And, quote, the cabin became a decaying storage facility that was rarely used, end quote. So this is not much evidence as to whether members of the town knew it was used. But again, pure speculation here. This is a town of less than 5,000 people. It's a small town, tight-knit community, if you would say. So I feel like some might have known that the cabin was abandoned. But this also kind of plays into our later theories, Um, uh, but again, we have no idea if Joshua knew if the cabin was abandoned or not. 
for reasons unknown and not really relevant, um, Chuck decided to demolish the property for future development. I think he like sold it to a developer. As soon as the chimney was excavated, the remains of Joshua were found. Joshua was found huddled in the fetal position with its with his legs above his head, and the coroner, I assume, but anyways, the authorities later used dental records to fig- to confirm that the body was in fact Joshua. So what evidence was found? Um, <laughs> I have to go on a little bit of a tangent here, so I'm sorry in advance, but I hate when crime shows essentially just bring up evidence selectively supporting different theories because it's it's really hard to understand which theory you believe the best when you're only getting evidence to support that certain theory. So I will try my best to bring up all the evidence before the theories. Like I alluded to earlier, this cabin was in the middle, uh, it was a very small cabin, in the middle of a huge plot of land. Um, tests were performed where one investigator would stand inside the cabin and scream, and another investigator would see if they could hear the scream from the nearest neighbor's house. Unsurprisingly, they found that if a struggle had taken place, the neighbors would have not been able to hear anything. So that is interesting and also terrifying. Um, There's a steel rebar installed inside the chimney. And first I have to tell you about how chimneys kind of work. So some later theories make sense. And also just because I've watched a lot of cases and I'm not going to call people out, but a lot of descriptions of the steel rebar don't exactly explain what this steel rebar is. Nobody kind of knows. Like I saw this one theory where this one person thought that it was something that you put like on, on a chimney to stop people from getting in or something, which which was very weird. Like I I feel like a lot of people who are researching these theories don't actually know how chimneys work. So I had to do a lot of research about how chimneys work. But um I'm probably not going to explain this very well, and this is a very short description of a very complicated equipment that is a chimney. So if you are near a a computer or um, I assume you're listening to this podcast on a phone, please just close out while you're still listening to this podcast and use Google or Safari or whatever web searching app you have. I think Ecosia, maybe. I think that's an app. Plants a tree, supposedly, every time you do Google search. So that's kind of fun. Um, But just Google search like chimney diagram and tap the images. That'll help you understand what I'm saying. But so first we have this damper. So I'm just going to get right into describing it. And yeah. Okay. So first we have a damper, which is kind of this little set of doors that you put right above where you put the logs. So where the fire occurs, essentially. So this is for the purpose of ventilation. And you, in practice, close a damper in the spring when you are not going to use the chimney for a long time. So chimneys also have a smoke shelf, which is exactly what it sounds. It is a little shelf to the right of a damper and yeah, it's essentially just a shelf. And then a flue is the most recognizable part of the chimney. You know, it's that long column stretching into the air. It is the reason that chimneys are so tall. Um, lastly, we have a chimney cap, very recognizable. It's a little box on top of the chimney, prevents water, animals, snow, um, from getting inside the chimney. So essentially it's this little box on top of the chimney 
but it still has holes for ventilation so the smoke can rise and get out without the water, animals, all that stuff coming in. Um, also important to note because, you know, the, the ch- chimney cap, we don't know how like eroded or what the chimney cap state was, but that comes important later in theories. Get Okay, so now that I've explained a chimney, let's get back to the evidence. Um, a rebar... So it's a steel rebar and it's a mesh, like steel mesh. So imagine mesh, but it's made out of steel um, sheet. And it's essentially installed one or two rows of bricks from the top of the chimney. And it's a stat attached with steel hooks. And it is important to note because Chuck Murphy, the owner of the cabin, later admitted in interviews with the coroner that the rebar, quote, could have been corroded, quote, To the best of our knowledge, though, the chimney cap, which would have been the first barrier for Joshua, was not. But then again, we don't know because, uh, according to sources, the chimney was, like, mostly gone before they were like, oh, my God, there is a dead body in here. Okay, um, inside the cabinet cabin, there is evidence that a, quote, wooden breakfast bar, quote, and I had to Google search this. I was so confused what it was, but to help the listeners out... Um, a breakfast bar, it's kind of, I would describe it as, it's essentially, it's basically like a kitchen island, but one side of it is attached to the wall and it doesn't move because I know some kitchen islands are like on wheels. Um, yeah, but anyway, so it was ripped out of the wall and moved in front of the chimney. Again, this is not an accident because it had to be ripped out of the wall, um, for this to occur. And this is evident by scratches that were found on the floor. As for clothing, here's a quote from the investigators. Joshua had only been wearing a thermal shirt when he was found. The rest of his clothes, including socks and shoes, were inside the cabin. Folded. So this is very key wording here. This direct quote says that they were folded up beside the fireplace, end quote. So if he this clothes were folded, then, then that, that's going to be important. So commit that to memory. Um, the autopsy. So according to the autopsy results... Joshua had no drugs in his system and the body had no sign of trauma. So trauma could be like broken bones, knife, bullet wounds, kind of things like that. Um, I don't know about bruises because that could kind of explain one of the later theories. Um, And the coroner, Al Bourne, I'll probably just call him Bourne from now on, but stated that the death had not been instant. So they don't even know really how Joshua died. But Again, most likely they believe that he either died of hypothermia or dehydration and Bourne ruled Joshua's death accidental. Okay, so now (laughs) um, let's get into the theories of the case. And this is kind of more of a simplistic theory. So great to start out this 50 States Unsolved series because there are really only two main theories. Well, I guess there is a sub theory on the second one, but you know, let's just get into it. So the first theory is that this death was just an accident um, on the part of Joshua. So this is the original ruling of the case by the coroner Bourne. Um, Bourne believed that Joshua had gotten cold and decided to break into the house via the chimney. Um, and then, you know, he the damper was closed or something and he couldn't get into the house um, so he died because he couldn't get out of the chimney or into the house, so he died. So the main evidence for that is that 
the the corp the the feet Joshua's feet were found above his head, indicating that he was like trying to get into the house. Um, and the cause of death ruled hypothermia or dehydration, meaning that like he was alive in that chimney. Um, and then we don't really, we can't really use the steel rebar as evidence because it had been removed by the time the body was found. So again, can't use that as evidence, but there is not any evidence to the fate as of the chimney cap, which if this theory would have, is true, would have been the first issue to be like, you know, dealt with to by Joshua to even get inside the chimney. Um, some evidence disproving this. I think um, Chuck Murphy's earlier quote about how the rebar could have been corroded might have been like under duress or something because Chuck later made a testimony. So he's kind of like backpedaling um, in my opinion. So it kind of makes him sound a little less trustworthy. Essentially, though, he basically just made a testimony and he was saying that this was impossible due to the steel rebar. Um, a large thick wire mesh hung from steel hooks and was used to keep animals and debris from becoming lodged inside the chimney. And, you know, you're probably thinking, like, why does he need all of these, like, preventative measures? Um, you know, you're probably thinking, like, why does he need all these preventative measures to keep, like, animals and debris out of the chimney? Well... If the chimney becomes clogged, all of that carbon monoxide is going to go back into the house because it's not properly ventilated. That's actually a lot of problems that they had with chimneys in the Middle Ages because, you know, they just weren't metal. I think especially like the Tudor period in England, um, the, these chimneys just weren't properly ventilated or cleaned. Um, if anyone's curious, you should look up chimney sweeps. Um, I think Weird History has a really good video about it on YouTube. Or maybe don't um, if you don't like child torture but yeah either way there's like very interesting history behind chimneys but essentially um in colorado we have a lot of different animals that love to come inside our houses in the cold winter um i mean you know every other week we probably have a story coming from some like weird part of colorado about you know a bear coming in or coming in like dangerous sight of humans and like even coming on like porches and houses which really scares people but that kind of just shows that like bears and things aren't afraid of humans anymore or a vast majority of them are we've also got mountain lions deer elk oh bison i mean i don't know if bisons are a problem but we definitely have a lot of them in colorado um i mean we also got raccoons but seriously though everywhere in colorado that's not denver as densely populated as Denver is, excuse me, has, I mean, even Boulder. I remember walking around Boulder and every single trash thing is bear proof. So it doesn't matter if it's a tiny trash can or this huge dumpster, it's bear proof because, you know, you don't want bears getting into your trash. I mean, then again, like imagine what Boulder students are throwing up, like that probably could kill bears or throwing out, excuse me, um, call me crazy, but that probably could kill a bear. Anyways, um, some facts that disprove this whole, like, accident theory, in my opinion, is that Joshua's clothing was found folded inside of the cabin, like I told you earlier, and next to the fireplace. So that means that he would have had to figure out a way to, uh, uh, get past this chimney cap, then the steel wire, which Chuck made a testimony. The owner of the cabin thinks it's impossible to get past this rebar. 
that was essentially made to keep animals out of the chimney. He thinks it would be kind of impossible for Joshua to get past the rebar. So he has to get through the chimney cap rebar. Then he goes into the chimney um, and then he figures out, oh, hey, you know, what am I going to do? Um, so I guess maybe the damper doors are open. I don't know. I guess this theory kind of implies that. And he would have to have took off all of his clothing for some reason, even though he would die of either hypothermia or dehydration. So he had to take off all of his clothing except for like a shirt and fold it and then somehow throw it to be next to the fireplace while still maintaining that fold. That sounds like way too unlikely um so that that itself kind of just disproves it the breakfast bar had been ripped out of the wall um I don't know why Chuck Murphy would have done that I he he also seems to be a character that's very involved with police you know so it's it's not likely that he would do that and not tell police you know unless he like killed Joshua but that's that's not even a theory that's again just akin to just saying I don't know aliens did it and then just dropping it you know I he didn't kill them but it's like why wouldn't he tell police that he had done that so another thing is that if Joshua did die trying to get out of the chimney why would his feet be towards the top of the chimney above his head because for this theory to be true his feet would have to be below his head and yeah, so the whole, like, position of the body was kind of weird. I mean, I don't know, maybe he could have died trying to get in the chimney. There's, like, a lot of things going on there. Um, but if the motive for breaking into the home was that he was freezing, why just didn't he go to his own house? Because it's not like he had had, like, a big argument with his folks and couldn't go home. He, he sure as heck could have gone home, you know? Um, and his house was two blocks away, too, so it's, like, that's not that far. Um, and it's something that's even more damning is that it's reported that most of his family doesn't even believe this theory. Okay, so if you couldn't tell, I don't believe this accidental theory at all. I think there's just too many like weird coincidences and things that are very unlikely to have happened. Um, but the second, second theory, as I have alluded to, I believe a lot more. That is the theory of foul play. So there are two main theories that both involve a basic timeline. And essentially the timeline starts that Joshua's places the cabin. So now the two theories divulge. One states that in a friendly contest, Joshua is dared to go up the chimney. He takes off his clothes because, you know, he doesn't want to go home. So he's just going to not dirty the clothes, you know, because chimneys are gross, very dirty. Um, he gets stuck and the friend or friends, and I'll, I'll elaborate why I say friends later, um, panic and rip the breakfast bar out of the wall. So Joshua can't get out and tell the police that the friends abandoned him. I mean, this kind of makes sense that Joshua was abandoned because, I mean, okay, just to name some of my, like, civilian knowledge of laws that they're breaking by going into these random, the Chuck Murphy's house, not even their house, um, breaking and entering, you could probably get a trespassing, um, attempted murder by leaving him there, and then it would be full-on 
second or third degree manslaughter or murder. I didn't, there was like a hundred different names for murder, but that that's a really big thing. So that's at least like four major laws that they broke. So they could be looking at like 25 to life, essentially, like long period of time in jail if they are essentially caught trying to murder him. So they're, they're trying to keep him in there. And then on to the second variation of the theory, Joshua is lured to the cabin for specifically malicious or platonic purposes. Those platonic purpose could, purposes could have been malicious, though. Keep that in mind. Anyways, an argument breaks out and Joshua is knocked out. And I say knocked out, um, like probably like a hit on the head or something, because the autopsy, I don't have any information as to whether that means as to, sorry, as to whether that means there were any bruises, but there was nothing really that penetrated. So maybe just like a, a hard hit right to the jugular, which is like your throat. Um, anyway, so he's knocked out and he's put up the chimney and left to die again to prevent him from getting out and turning on the killers. The breakfast bar is ripped out and placed in front of the chimney. So yeah, I also have to mention here that Bourne is he uh, yeah he later like reopens the case and changes it to murder so the uh burn born is like weirdly kind of intertwined with this case which i think is very interesting but anyways i say killers because born i think um estimates that it would have taken two people to push joshua up the chimney yeah um so anyways evidence for the foul play theory is theories excuse me is that clothing was folded by the side of the chimney folded placed by the side it was in an effort to prevent identification or maybe even done by joshua the breakfast bar is ripped out of the wall that's not really something that just happens on accident oh sorry bro we were just having a rager and you know your your breakfast bar accidentally got out of the wall you know um the corpse being found with his feet in the air or above its head because if Joshua was trying to escape via the damper after waking up dazed and alone in this chimney, of course his feet would be above his head. He's trying to get out of the chimney. Um, and probably the most damning fact, I think, is that one of Joshua's friends, we just know him from the first name Andrew, and I don't even know if this is a pseudonym to protect his anonymity. Anyways, Okay, so this friend, Andrew, allegedly bragged online about, and here's his direct quote, um, putting Josh in a hole. So I assume Josh is like a nickname for Joshua. Um, there's also some mounting evidence for Andrew being the killer. Um, this might just be a straw man fallacy, but I'm going to use it anyways. It is that Joshua has a criminal record in six states. Um, he also bragged about killing a woman in New Mexico by putting her body in a drum. Um, police didn't arrest him for this, though, which was really weird. Um, I guess they just decided, like, no, we think it's someone else. And and the, he was kind of okay with it. I mean, yeah, if I just murdered someone and they just arrest somebody else for that, like, heck yeah, you know, I'd feel on top of the world. So I, I guess that makes sense. Anyways, so this is, again, where we kind of see the, the police... I feel like in a lot of these missing and unsolved cases, you know, there's a lot of kind of like police just being like inherently like unhelpful and kind of just contributing this 
to being missing, which is really, really annoying. But um, essentially, Andrew or sorry, Joshua's friends tried to get the police to investigate Andrew at the time, but their concerns were dismissed. Um, authorities told Joshua's friends that Joshua was alive, most likely, and living elsewhere. So the police, uh, they just, they have this amazing track record, like all over the world. It's not even U.S. specific all over the world of just thinking, oh, you know, like your two-year-old went missing, uh, probably just ran away, you know? And it's just, it's so frustrating because it's like, if you'd actually looked into this Andrew guy, maybe there could have been something more there, but they were just convinced that he was a runaway. And that's just really frustrating because that's not, that's not true. You know, he was not a runaway. He was literally found dead two blocks from his house. Um, there is also one other suspect, but again, born weirdly connected to this case, but he claims that the unnamed man would have been too small to be able to stuff Joshua's body into the chimney. As for counter evidence, because I want to acknowledge that there could be counter evidence, I don't think there is any that would indicate the cause of death is anything other than foul play. The coroner, born even reopened, like I said earlier, reopened the case after getting complaints from the cabin owner. Check. So the cabin owner is literally saying, I don't think this is an accident. My rebar is too strong. It can prevent wild animals. I think this 18-year-old skinny boy is not even remotely as strong as a wild animal. Please reopen the case. So yeah, Bourne reopened the case and it was later ruled a, quote, murder due to undetermined causes. So, I mean, you've heard my personal opinion. I really do think that this was a foul play. Simple as that. Um, I, yeah, I haven't really heard much as to suspects, besides this Andrew guy, but I do agree with Bourne that it probably would have taken multiple people, especially if Andrew, like, didn't fit up this damper. I mean, you know, dampers are very, very small because, you know, smoke is gas, so it's not like the dampers really need to do anything besides, you know, well, you know what I'm saying? They don't have to be particularly big, but I think they're, like, 20 inches wide, and call me crazy, but I don't, I don't know how skinny this kid was, but he, I don't know if he was 20 inches wide. So yeah, I definitely would like to see more about Andrew, but I think that is kind of it. So that was our case for today. Thank you so much for listening. Come back next time for a new episode of the 50 States Unsolved series. And if you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on whatever podcast directory you are listening from. Have a great day. Goodbye, everybody.